Bending Granite. Welcome, welcome, welcome again, Bending Granite listeners. Our second episode is going to be entitled, A Moment in Time. It's going to include some interviews with four people about the introduction and implementation of quality principles in the city of Madison. It's going to include an interview with past Mayor Joe Sensenbrenner, how after he heard Dr. Edwards Deming, he became very influenced by his thinking. Joe discovered that he could use these principles and ideas to improve the work of the city. Little did Joe know that his decision would not only influence the city government, but public and private enterprises across the city and surrounding areas for decades to come. My name's Tom Muscular, and um, I joined the city in 1987 um, as the city's first quality and productivity um, administrator for the city of Madison. Well, Jill, thanks for taking time with us this morning. It would be helpful to get your kind of sense of the Genesis story of what were some of the key events or key people that come to mind that were particularly important in the beginning of Madison's evolution and quality? Well, I'd have to say first and foremost to be Dr. Deming. I was uh, recently elected mayor and had some ideas about transportation and parks, streets and so forth, but didn't really have an organizing principle that was different from good government and other other places I have observed and worked. So I, I heard Dr. Deming and appealed to me very much and I went up to him afterwards and I said, uh, um, I, I'm very intrigued. I want to look into this further. I need to know where it's being done. What's the literature so I can look into the record? Who can I talk to? And he said, I can't because it isn't being done anywhere in the public sector. It seems everyone who had met Dr. Deming was influenced and had some takeaway. So my name is Michael Williamson. I was chief of staff for the mayor of the city of Madison. I served on that team from 1983 until 1988. Well, Deming was a curmudgeon of a guy, uh, slow talking. How do you know you can't know? And he would lecture for four days. And then they would give you a test. The organization that he was working for would give you a test. And he would say, you can't score me. You can't test me to judge me. Wait 10 years and then take the test and see if what I've taught you makes any difference. But he was profound and he was experienced. And he uh, taught us lessons that we never heard before that we had never experienced in ways of thinking about organizations and about processes. Michael, you just uh, reminded me of some of those wonderful stories. Uh, I remember having dinner with Deming, and you may have been there at Mayor Sensenbrenner's house, and I'm sitting next to Dr. Deming, and he could not hear that well. He probably was 90 at the time. Um, and so he cupped his ear and he leaned over toward me. And I couldn't tell, given how popular he was nationally and globally, whether he was really seriously, he was listening deeply to my sharing of the strategy we were using to figure out how to deploy this in the city. And uh, it was so genuine. I, I just was moved by his level of curiosity 
uh, at 90 years old. And that's always stuck with me. So this is Elizabeth Fidel, and I was with the city of Madison starting in 1991. And I was there for two years as the first quality improvement specialist. Well, I, I definitely sought out Deming and the trainings that he and his organization provided. So I did all of that work and I enjoyed it because there was such a variety of people in the room. I mean, actually it was primarily not government people in the room when I was taking it. Um, so I appreciated that, you know, the fact that this could be applied across any sort of area or industry. But I would say, you know, what really attracted me to Deming's philosophy was the whole systems approach and the fact that it really integrated the human side, the people side with sort of the more technical process improvement statistical side. You know, Deming really cared about the people. I think for him, it was actually all about the people, right? Drive out fear, you know, understanding that everyone in the organization needs to be involved in the solution. And really it's about service to people who use, you know, whatever it is that you produce. Although I will also say that by extension, because it's a whole systems perspective, it translates very easily to people and environment, right? The ecosystem that we all live in becomes one of the key stakeholders, right? And that naturally flows from Deming's philosophy. So when I say it's people-centric, human-centric, maybe it's life-centric. But I was absolutely taken with the underlying ideas, the respect for people, the discipline, the logic of uh, keeping track of uh, what you do in a very careful way. And we proceeded to recruit people, uh, Joyner Associates, Brian Joyner and Laura Joyner, and, and uh, the organization was in town and highly regarded and well-practiced. Uh, Bill Hunter at the university and uh, Brian Joyner at Joyner Associates and others, over time, helped us develop materials and we just attracted good people. I'd say that's the core story, is the people who are interested in doing their job better. What were attracted to come and ask questions and so forth. It grew naturally in, in my estimation because of its uh, natural qualities of, of the practices themselves. This was a moment in time when Joe went to hear Dr. W. Edwards Deming at the University of Wisconsin in the spring of 1983, Dr. Deming was already 83 and still largely unknown in the United States. By then, the Japanese already revered Dr. Deming, who they credited for their inspiring post-war economic recovery. After being featured on an NBC TV documentary, If Japan Can, Why Can't We?, demands for his consultation here in the United States skyrocketed. His book, Out of the Crisis, was published the same year he and Joe met. Deming shared his thoughts that day on statistical process control, plan to check act, his 14 key points, the seven deadly sins, and his philosophy on profound knowledge. A light was switched on and the journey began in the city of Madison. It was a moment in time.
Well, this was the early 80s, and the implementation of quality management principles was new across the country, but it was particularly unheralded and untried in governmental organizations. And so the challenge for us was uh, after uh, the mayor heard Deming speak and decided that this was something that we could use in the city, was trying to figure out where, where we would we turn. And so what we were using was translations of Japanese industrial models when we started this work. So in those early years, um, you've got the, you know, you've got a, 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 some funding, you've got a hunch about an idea that you want to test. What were some of the first things that happened in the city, Joe, to begin getting the flywheel turning? I was looking for volunteers. I wasn't looking to direct that certain agencies do certain things. And I was aware that we had considerable problems maintaining the city fleet, cars and trucks. And, and I knew we had trouble. And it occurred to me that that might be an area because it was more akin to manufacturing, more akin to the repetitive processes where it had been proved successful. If we could start there, that would, the analogy would be closer. Parts was one of the first things that they looked at. And they discovered that they have an enormous number of parts that they have to keep track of. And there were delays in getting the parts. Well, why was that the case? It appeared that the important part of that was the city's interpretation of low bid. You had to go out and bid this. You had to go out and bid everything. And that took time. Well, who said that? Well, the city attorney said that. Well, I wonder. I'm an attorney. I, I know that there is some elbow room in most laws. And sensibly interpreted, it seemed to me you didn't have to bid everything every time. So I did go to the city attorney. That, in fact, was his considered opinion that we could bid uh, in larger chunks. So we gradually took a many, many step process uh, involving delays and frustration into a blanket contract bids, getting what we needed because it had already been approved in, in a blanket fashion. The parts were ones that the supplier had confidence in, we had confidence in. So a whole, whole ripple effect happened uh, with our supplier, with the workers, with the work being done, and then ultimately the customers uh, were getting the equipment back much more quickly. What I remember, Joe, was that the uh, turnaround time on those vehicles was about nine and a half days um, to get any vehicle repaired, and we were able to bring it down to about 48 hours in, in that uh, transformation. And the, Parts buying process went from around 27 steps um, down to seven steps. That showed me, and I think it showed almost anybody that, that paid attention, uh, what the possibilities were. That was, sort of, that was a breakthrough area with a tough union, a real work, widespread consequences of bad work, and consequently widespread consequences of good work. Michael, what can you tell us about this first project? We didn't know how to start. We didn't know where to turn. And so that's where Brian Joyner and Bill Hunter from the University of Wisconsin-Madison campus came in. And they said, we need to identify an area that's important that will help us establish these techniques. 
And at that time, there was a tremendous crisis down at the city garage. And there was slow turnaround on the vehicles getting repaired. And so everyone said, well, it's because we have union mechanics down there. So therefore, they work too slow. We need to contract this work out. So that was, we, we wanted to pick a place that was important. And in the story that's uh, in the Bending Granite book, I wrote about never wasting a crisis because the city garage represented a crisis for the city at that time. And that's where we made that first uh, toehold, where we first got started and involved the, the mechanics at the city garage, the, the management team that was there, and used the techniques that Deming had advocated for, but that Brian Joyner and Bill Hunter helped us establish. And so, and that turned out to be successful. And so it, it, it was prophetic that in order, to, in order to be successful, you need a good toehold, a good landmark case to start with. And that's how we got started. Tom, what's your thoughts on getting started? All of the quality stuff is built off that fundamental idea of a plan, do, study, act cycle, right? You plan something, you try it out, you check on what worked, what didn't work, and then you adjust, you adapt, you abandon. I mean, that is the cycle. Well, it's quite clear that when I look back now at what Michael shared in this story of how the Genesis story of quality in the city, they pilot tested at motor equipment, one pilot test. That was successful. When I came in in 87, they'd been at it three, four years already, you know, trying to build the infrastructure. And then they saw that it was valuable enough and got city council supportive enough and enough employees supportive enough that someone like myself could come in and actually start speeding up the PDSA cycle, right? So when I came on board, we built a steering committee that was made up of people from the mayor's office, different departments, champions from different parts of the community. And that became the body that held this whole process in place. And then we began to expand the number of improvement projects we were doing from one in motor equipment to one in the streets department, one in the planning department, one in the health department, one down at the uh, uh, um, Madison Metro Transit. So it started expanding the number of places. And as those stories started coming in, we then began building out the facilitator capability that you take to be people who can go into those places and support teams using a systematic approach to problem solving. So that started building out the culture um, throughout the organization. And within, a, I'd say three, four years, um, we probably had 15, 20, 30 teams going at any time in the city in different departments. And when we really had breakthrough is when we started getting different departments working together around common interest. So streets and parks, right? And, and uh, engineering, which had common processes, began putting teams together cross-functionally. That was another level of breakthrough on the PDSA cycle. I learned that you don't do quality methods in a vacuum. You do it in an atmosphere, an atmosphere of people. Listen to Elizabeth Fidel talk about the importance of building people skills 
to move things forward. The consciousness with everyone that I worked with really was this integrated consciousness. And so as a result, one of the things I learned about at the city of Madison was how important it was to develop the people's skills to be able to do process improvement and, you know, whole systems thinking. So for example, uh, we developed uh, capacity building around, you know, teamwork, team facilitation, how to run effective meetings, sort of all the psychology of bringing people together to collaborate, to make improvements. I think sometimes when people think about quality management, they just think about statistical process control, or they just think about flowcharts, right? Or they just think about data collection. But that was only one small part. I mean, one critical and important part necessary, but not sufficient for the Deming approach. So when people went through quality improvement training at the city of Madison, half of it was in the tools and methods traditionally um, thought of around quality improvement, but half of it was around uh, group process, effective teamwork, how to be a good leader, informal leadership. You know, so we ran people through capacity building in both those, like both those lanes and integrated them. You know, I think one of the most significant impacts of bringing a group of people together is that oftentimes these are people who aren't really able to talk to each other in their day-to-day -day work. In other words, you know, you put your head down, you do your work. You don't necessarily see the impact of what you do. And you don't actually oftentimes get to talk to the people who provide you with important information that you need to do your work. But with the quality improvement, you kind of get everybody in the room, like the whole flow, the whole system is in the room. So I get to finally talk to the people directly that I provide service to. And I get to talk to the people I rely on, you know, call them suppliers, whatever. But I get to actually sit down and have a conversation with them and also problem solve with them. So you kind of get everybody in the room. So, for example, you know, in the police department, you've got, you know, patrol officers talking to detectives, talking to the dispatchers, talking to, you know, not just their sergeant, but the lieutenants and captains. In other words, you kind of get everybody in the room. And, you know, of course, everyone doesn't talk openly immediately, right? You have to build some trust. You have to see that people will listen, that uh, people will actually use what you have to offer. So it takes some time to build that rapport, but that's part of what we did is to help facilitate that. There's certain ways to help with that, but ultimately you just have to sort of come together over time and do the work. But I mean, I would say that was one of the biggest impacts, just hearing the voices, all the different voices, but also, you know, being able to, being able to come up with some creative ideas together and try some things together. So it becomes less personal, right? It's not about personalities in the room. Actually, it's about, you know, you've got all these people with their experiences and their knowledge in the room, and you can talk about the work. The city was now getting objective results from the quality approach. 
But can you share the more subjective effect of the work being done? Let's say the impact? Yeah, probably one of the most interesting changes came about uh, with in regards to asking the workers how they could improve the situation. And they understood the work certainly better than the senior leaders and in some cases better than the middle managers. And the quality process went to the workers and asked them who were in the process on a day-to-day -day basis what improvements were needed, how, they, how could they make this process work better. And there was an empowerment that occurred with them and a sense of pride that they were not there just for their hands and their backs, but they were there for their minds. And they were contributing to solving complex problems that had plagued the city for some time. And the inverse of that was the resistance that we ran into from the middle managers who saw themselves as being the ones who controlled the flow of information up to the senior managers. And if you were going to the workers, then what need did you have for the middle managers and the resistance that they had to this process? And one of the key lessons we learned is the need to enroll the middle managers in this work too, so they didn't feel threatened by us going and talking and working directly with the frontline employees. Yeah. If I could build on what Michael just shared, he, he had a very key point. I think one of the key things that made us um, successful was getting the middle managers to trust us and to trust that our aim was to actually improve the process the processes that were critical to getting work done and some came over early and became real champions and as you know whenever we set up an improvement team we always set up a sponsoring leadership team their job of that leadership team was to clear the barriers so people closest to the work could do what they needed to do to improve the process and by enrolling the middle managers so they became empowered as the guide what we call the guidance teams was really an essential breakthrough for us Joe, what would be your principal message regarding the use of quality methods? Well, I would say that the principal um, message uh, would be to believe uh, that you can probably do a better job uh, without just working harder and pushing harder and studying harder, uh, actually opening up and, and listening and learning, I think is the key. And uh, there are helps, there are path, pathways, there are techniques uh, that are out there uh, that will uh, enable you to, to be more satisfied and be happier uh, personally and, and professionally. Um, and I, I'd invite people to inquire, inquire into that. And, and if there's uh, any, any particular outcome from uh, what we have done is that in many, many, many places, it has persisted, it has grown, it has changed in, in ways, uh, and it may be uh, we're at a, an inflection point 
for a whole variety of societal reasons where these questions and, and these inquiries and these methods of being open uh, will be more timely. As we close, I'd like to thank our guests, Joe Sensenbrenner, Tom Moskeller, Michael Williamson, and Elizabeth Fidel. I'll let Elizabeth make some concluding remarks. A lot of these ideas are timeless. They're ideas about human beings. They're ideas about our relationship to each other and to the planet, right? This, there's a lot of big issues and challenges. And they're big, they're whole system big issues. And we can't just put band-aids on things, right? Or pick off little pieces. So we've got to think systemically. And I think this is an example of doing just that. And so why not learn from people's experiences in the past and continue to chew on the important questions, right? That people have been chewing on for a long time. I mean, a lot of this started before 1990, right? We all went back to the 50s, to the 40s, mm -hmm. you know, to the 19th century. What were they thinking about? I mean, mm -hmm. we built on the shoulders of giants. So I just think it's important, right? To keep passing on the wisdom, the mistakes, so people won't have to repeat them maybe. And the questions, a lot of this is just questions that we're still exploring. And so, you know, it's exciting to think that next, the next generation, the new generations can pick up the mantle and continue to do the exploration. Um, but it feels like the stories are how we all sort of learn and remember. And it's kind of the fuel that, you know, fuels the next set of experiments. I mean, I really think we all thought we were just engaged in a big experiment. We knew that. We knew we didn't have all the answers, nor would we find all the answers. But hopefully, you know, we move things forward a little bit and the experiment continues. So I'm excited to think that I'm going to have partners of all ages continuing the experiment. Visiting with our guests today, I learned that a great deal of time, the value you provide isn't nearly as important as pushing yourself to provide it. This is especially true at first. Having the courage to get started is often more important than succeeding, because the people who consistently get started, like those managing the city of Madison, are the ones that are sure to make a difference. Thank you, thank you, thank you, listeners. We hope you continue to join us as we visit with more authors who share their stories from our book, Bending Granite. This is your host, Tim Hallock, wishing you luck in Bending Granite.